talking to myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words and maybe Hi, welcome along to another one of Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. And um, it's not very often that you get somebody with a footballer surname on. We've got Holly Daglish on a, football, on a football show. <laughs> uh, regular viewers of the channel will remember Holly um, has been on News of the World. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting her back on there at some point as well. But um, she's got a fantastic story to tell and uh, a very interesting one. I'm going to do an abridged version. You might have seen Holly appear on quite a few other podcasts talking about her life in the prison system, mm -hmm. not as a prisoner, I hasten to add, Holly. <laughs> yeah, please, clarify <laughs> that. <laughs> so, your ambitions as a child, when you were at school, what did you want to be? Well, originally, I wanted to be a marine biologist because I was obsessed with sharks. Mm -hmm. um, and then I watched Silence of the Lambs and I decided that I'd wanted to join the FBI. So I actually looked into going to um, a university in America so I could, um, you know, train there and hopefully get into the FBI. Very stupid of me. Um, and then what happened then? Yeah, so I did a degree in psychology mm -hmm. and it was like I wanted to go into the psychology field. Um, I was going to do a master's, da, 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 all the rest of it. Um and then I started looking, thinking about the police. And then one day my dad said, have you thought the prison service, psychology degree, you know, would, would sort of work with, with um, what I was doing? And my plan was to start as a prison officer and then move over to psychology. Um, but prison officers got paid way more than the psychologists. So I got sucked in. And once you're sucked in, you never get out. <laughs> so <laughs> Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Just tell us a little bit about the training because, you know, obviously, you know, we, we see, um, you know, we see programs on TV now about, you know, people going into the service and um, we see, we see more about inmates. I've got to be honest than, than prison officers themselves. Yeah. And, and I've, I've interviewed a couple of former prison officers on this channel as well. Um, you know, and, and obviously, you know, work a lot with Lee uh, who's been on, on both sides of the bars, but from your yeah. perspective, as a female, what was it yeah. like going into a male, a, a heavily populated male environment? Um, intimidating. Mm. Um, it, it, it was difficult because you have to remember I was 21, fresh out of the university. I had had some life experience, but I'd never had a fight, never really had an argument with anyone, um, never sort of associated with anyone that committed crime or took drugs or anything like that so this I have to say the prisoners were not the problem overall they were very very respectful um people think that women shouldn't work in a male jail and I got on with the with the prisoners we had a really good relationship but the staff, I was, like I said, I was, I was 21, I was keen, I was eager, you know, but the staff looked down on me, really. Um, so I had more of a problem with them. They thought I would not be capable of handling myself uh, physically. 
Uh, they, I think they just thought I was this stupid little girl who didn't know what she was doing. Um, and there was, and I've said this before, and I've been absolutely slated online for saying this, but the misogyny and the harassment was was quite significant. Um, so I was not afraid, not afraid of the prisoners. It was more the intimidation and being made to feel uncomfortable by the male staff. And obviously being brand new, you don't have a voice. You don't stick up for yourself. You just, it's the sort of attitude was put up and shut up mm. and, and you don't, you don't grasp basically. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to deal with that. And I, I, I soon found my feet and I soon found my voice Um because you have to, because otherwise you, you, you're going to just, I don't know. You, you sink or swim. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, and I swam and I went through a lot and I experienced a lot. Um, but it made me the person that I became. All those um, experiences that I went through just spurred me on. I used them as a sort of stepping stone to think, I can do better. I can become better. I can change it from the inside. So that's why I started to go through promotion because I thought it would make a difference. So, yeah, very quickly starting in the service, I thought I, I want to go further. I wanna... So going into the going in, just going back a little bit, the prison officer side of things. How how long is the training take, Holly? Well, the initial training was 12 weeks. Now, just to clarify, they've completely overhauled the training now. So it's 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 completely different to, to what I did. So it was a 12-week uh, training and it was residential. So you would be there Monday to Friday, staying over, and then you would go home at the weekend. Um, and it was a place called Newbold Revel College. And it's a very, very posh type setting and we were in dorm uh, type conditions um i'm gonna be straight with you here it was a bit of a boozy time <laughs> so quite often we would be out social but socializing drinking coming in at two o'clock in the morning and then having to do um a health and safety class or a CPR class or so they always took us for either a run in the morning we had to do marching um we had to do a lot of physical stuff uh, to get our fitness up um we did a lot of stuff on um into you know interactions how to manage prisoners um all the paperwork so the paperwork in the prison service is just off the scale um, so we spent a lot of time learning about paperwork. There was something like 52 prison rules that prisoners have to abide by. So we had to learn all of those. Um, so it, I found it interesting. I, I found it really, you know, um, apart from the health and safety, which was boring as shit. Um, but yeah, it was good. And, and, and what it did when you're in a residential situation with all your colleagues it you it's the teamwork you start to bond with people you sort of learn to to watch each other's back um and then we did obviously uh, control and restraint training and I love that 
you know, all the shields, the the riot stuff, the fighting, the you know, it's that was that was uh, sort of my favourite bit. Um, well, nothing, but nothing yeah. can prepare you for the actual moment that you step inside a prison and onto the landings. And I, I've got to say, it's very similar with with being a door a doorman. Um, I mean, in, in in a lot of ways, because you know, you you have to go through a period of training and. Mm-hmm. You know, I can say probably the same about the police or the army, I guess. But anything in that kind of area where you're dealing with, you know, potentially, you know, life threatening, life threatening situations, that has to be said, yeah. or people yeah, who yeah. could cause you harm or intend to cause you harm. Um, mm-hmm. You only know when you get onto that, you know, your first day's shift on that land and whether you can cope with it or not, because it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that. Yeah, I was because the training was so fun and you know we were told about violent prisoners we did sort of role plays and things like that but I have to say my first shift it was at style prison my first shift I was absolutely shitting myself and I you know I'm not afraid to admit that it was because the training was very much focused on male prisons so female prisons are just completely, it's like a world away from what from what male prisons are like. And yeah, I have to say, I was terrified. I was really, really scared. And I had it was fine. The shift was absolutely fine. Um, but I knew at some point I was gonna have a fight. And that was what I was worried about. And once I got my first fight under my belt, I know that sounds really, really weird, but once I got my first fight under my belt, I started to get a bit more confident. You do always have that fear of being assaulted. I was kind of like, not, not, not the face or the teeth, you know what I mean? I can't, I can't, I can't take a punch. Uh, but fortunately, you always have staff around. You always have people watching your back. You know, you might be on your own with someone, but you know staff will respond within seconds minutes and then the situation so when we do uh, control and restraint there's always three officers so we use the the sort of the control and restraint is very much sort of based on jujitsu type holds Mm -hmm. um and things like that so yeah i soon i soon found my feet if you know what i mean but the I went from style then to a male prison. I went to Wormwood Scrubs in Brixton after that, and that was absolutely terrifying. That tell us was... about your first. Tell us about your first fight before we move on to those two. Then, what what was your first fight? Well, it was it was more so. Women tend to fight more with other women. There's mm. always some sort of drama, and I'm not stereotyping women here, but there is always some sort of drama going on it, it's just horrendous they are argue back all the time um so i remember two women started fighting and you just have to get in between them that's it you just have to you know you you have to separate them you're not allowed to stand there and let them beat the shit out of each other you've got to get stuck in so i'm literally between these two women that are and hair pulling they were really women pull hair. Men don't. Women pull hair, and there's like literally clumps of hair coming out. And I'm just like hands out, trying to stop. And the, yeah, it was. And the staff came eventually and helped me pull them apart. But um, 
yeah, it's it's fighting in between two um, very very angry women is is not a good place to be. Um, but yeah, got it under my belt. The adrenaline was going, and then I thought, right, okay, that's done. You know, I can do it. I can do it again. Um, so I was happy. <laughs> it sounds weird. I was happy. It was the one thing that I was really scared about fighting, and I got through it. But I tell you what, women, wow. If you think men can fight, women are just, they don't stop. So men will fight. You'll get in between them. And generally, it's like a couple of punches and it's done. It's over. Women do not stop. They do so, not stop. So from style to, to, to Wormwood Scrubs and Brixton, I mean, was that an enforced move? Was that a move that you, you instigated yourself? No, no. So what happens is when a prison, because just to sort of give you the backstory, yeah, there, there was a massive recruitment because um, Risley Prison, which held women on remand, was shut in. Um, so they built a new wing at Style. So they recruited about, oh, about 25 of us. But the wing wasn't ready to be open, so the prison was overstaffed. So what happens is when a prison's overstaffed and another prison is understaffed, you can volunteer to go. You don't know, you're not, you're not made to, but you, back in the old days, back in the days, it was really lucrative. You know, you made a lot of money because you got like extra pay. You got, you know, I think at the time it was, 25 quid a night and then on top of that we were getting traveling and all our extras and my family were down south uh, my boyfriend was down south so it just really worked out well for me um and I had no idea what I was letting myself in for I just thought oh this will be great there was a load of us going down so I thought brilliant loads of mates to go this is it's going to be like training again it's fab um they sent me to Wormwood Scrubs on my own and then sent about 12 people to Brixton. I was just like, just me going to Wormwood Scrubs. And the Scrubs has or had, just excuse me, I'm going to get a quick drink. The, um, the Scrubs had an absolutely appalling reputation. Um, a load of staff, the reason we went or I went there, a load of staff had just been sacked for prison bruta uh, prisoner brutality and officers were jailed because they'd been battering prisoners on the segregation unit. So there was a mass uh, dismissal of staff. Um, and I don't, I can only describe my first day. So I went in and I'm this little bouncy, excited little puppy, had my hair piled up on my head had a bit of makeup on, was, you know, ready to go. Not one person spoke to me, not one person, until I was put on a wing. And then I got put on the wing and the principal officer, who's like highest uniform rank, basically um, said, I can't believe they've sent you to us, sit in the office, you can make my tea all day, that's your job. So I was literally told to stay in the office. And then I was said, uh, then he said, if there's an alarm bell, which means obviously some incidents going on, he said, just lock yourself in my office because I was the only woman. I wasn't I wasn't really allowed out on the landings until about a week later. <laughs> so, 
so yeah it was pretty harsh no 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 one spoke to me prisoners spoke to me because they were really interested they were like are you from style what's that like what are the women like you know they were really sort of inquisitive um and the staff just ignored me uh, and then I got bollocks because I was talking to prisoners um and I, I was told that I was flirting with them I'm like what I'm just talking to them because obviously the staff didn't interact with them and I'm a chatty person and you know that was your, that was what we were told to do at college we were told to speak to them we, you know it's called dynamic security you find things out you you know you find out who's who and what's going on and who's doing what uh, but yeah I got dragged in and told that I was flirting and I was just like it's just my natural way of being. I'm just chatty, happy, bouncy, or I was then. Um, that soon changed. Um, but I was just, I was just, I thought, I can't spend a 12 hour shift not talking to anyone. Um, I was at Wormwood Scrubs, they would, um, and probably quite a few people have probably heard this story, um, they would put porn films on in the staff room at lunchtime. Um, obviously it made me extremely uncomfortable. So I would go sit at the end of the landing, which was absolutely freezing, and just eat eat my packed lunch and, and read a book or something. So, yeah, there was there was always staff swapping deep, uh, porn, porn DVDs and videos and things like that. And it was just yeah. like, and I'm thinking these are in charge of prisoners do you know what I mean it's like yeah it just it just it was just wrong it was mm. just completely wrong um but I only did I think four weeks there and they said and then they said oh you can go to Brixton now and I was like yes and that was a completely different experience it was really weird um I mean both prisoners had a bad reputation but Brixton, they were dead friendly. Um, you know, we were welcomed with open arms, really. So there was about 10 of us um, from style that went down. And it, it was fab. You know, the, we stayed in the hotel. We used to eat out at night. They generally tended to put us together working places. So it was good to have friends around. Um, but, yeah, there was... Um, some experiences there as well shall we say um we worked on the psychiatric unit quite a lot so that was like silence of the lambs so imagine I don't know perfect if for it. you after your uh, original exactly idea. so I, I was like chuffed to bits you know fascinating um so you can imagine the corridor in silence of the lambs <clears throat> it was a bit brighter but there were cells on either side and they had hatches that they could open so that they could like stick the heads out and things like that. But they could also throw things out. So it was like running the gauntlet. When you went down this corridor, it was like, maybe you'd get some spit. Maybe it wasn't like, I don't know if you've seen the film. It wasn't like multiple MIGs or anything like that. Yeah. But you'd get, you'd get the abuse. You'd get the, you'd get things thrown out of the wind, uh, out of the hatch and things like that. Um, but the, it was quite a, quite a big unit. Um, 
and that was that when I saw my first really serious incident of self-harm on that psychiatric unit um I'd so when a prisoner is at, at real risk of suicide um they put a perspex door instead of it instead of cell door and it's literally so a member of staff can sit outside and observe them 24 hours a day but these prisoners are really sneaky so god knows how they do things um or hide things when you've been watched 24 hours a day anyway so there was this one guy and he was being observed 24 hours a day perspex door and i think I, i walked past and just nipped to the office or something and the cell floor was blue and the walls were cream. And I remember walking back because I've never seen blood. I've never seen anyone self-harm. It's just, you know, completely alien to, well, it'd be completely alien to anyone. And I walked back and I thought, I actually thought the works department had gone in and repainted the cell because the cell floor was red and it just didn't register in my mind and then I noted that noted the splashes of blood up the wall and then the staff came in and it opened up an artery and the 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 amount of blood the arterial spray everything I just couldn't I didn't get involved I just I, I I think I went into shock but I could smell <clears throat> I could smell the blood and that never leaves you. And, and and it's unless you've actually been in that situation, it smells coppery. It's 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 just there's something you know, people say, Oh, once you've smelled a dead body, you never you never forget it, or you know, it sticks in your mind. That's the same with blood, and it was a huge amount of blood that he had lost. Um but yeah, I couldn't respond to that. I def- I definitely went into shock. Um, well, there's but to to the other staff, they were used to it. They just was like went in, dealt with it. Nurses patched him up. Um, <clears throat> they were able to stitch him up and do what they needed to do. Um, but yeah, made me quite sick. So I've got a bit of an aversion to bodily fluids. Um, and believe me, in the prison service, you come across every bodily fluid that you can think of. Um, so on the one hand, it was really interesting. And I got to, you know, <clears throat> sometimes sit in with the psychiatrist because you had to stay. If the prisoner was volatile, you'd have to attend the meetings with them. Um, and I found that really fascinating. Obviously, background in psychology, um, you know, and it gave me a lot of knowledge. It gave me a lot of sort of mental health experience, um, which sort of really helped for the rest of my service. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was quite a quite a funny place. The upper floors were like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and it it was generally it was a, a crazy place to work. Um, but I enjoyed it. Like I say, I'm really interested in people's psyche and behavior and stuff like that. And, you know, another thing that it taught me is <clears throat> how prisoners, excuse me, 
how prisoners fake mental illness as well. Mm. So I picked up lots of tips from the psychiatrists, you know, in terms of like when they hear voices and because they think they get treated better on the healthcare unit or it might help, for example, with their court case. So if you're deemed mad, obviously, or you know, you might get to a hospital. So, yeah, really fascinating. So, you know, saw a lot of fights, saw a lot of self-harm. Um but it started to toughen. That was when it, I started to toughen up and I started to, you know, really find my feet and, and hit the ground running. Um, and the staff were great. I was working with my friends and, yeah, it was good. It, it, it was a good experience. The self-harm situation is something which you hear a lot about. Um, yeah. Protests as well. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the, the prisoners do tend to protest in a rather extraordinary way, dirty protests. I'm sure you've seen a lot of those in, in your time. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, I don't do bodily fluids. However, you get very, very used to it very quickly. So um, I'll, gi- I'll give you a couple of incidents. Um, one woman came in style, clearly, clearly, unwell from psychiatric perspective now bearing in mind in prison unlike psychiatric hospitals we cannot enforce treatment so they can refuse to take their medication um you know we can't we can't touch them can't do anything um we can't you know forcibly make them take a tablet or give them a tranquilizer injection nothing um so this woman came in and I would say she was in about forties, fifties. Um, and the minute she came in, she started smearing shit everywhere. And I mean, but it wasn't a protest. She'd just gone. Her head had just gone. She covered a whole body head to toe in her own shit. The walls were covered in it. The floor was covered in it. Obviously, you have to feed people every day and give them drinks. So staff would be having to put like almost like NBC suits on, literally crack the door open and shove the food through. And she wasn't eating. So God knows where this amount of shit was coming from. Um, So we were like, people think that prison officers have the power when it comes to mental health. We don't. It's the psychiatrists and the mental health team. However, she was so bad. So, oh, oh, yeah, it was in her hair as well, all in her hair. So the questions were asked, can we forcibly move her out of the cell and get her in the bath and in the meantime, clear the room? So the uppers, the highers, the management, um, said no we can't it's it's called it's an enforced treatment and we're like she needs to get in the bath she needs to be scrubbed from head to toe so it took about a week and I think we had to go through the home office to get permission um, and like NHS England to physically remove her from the cell into the bath um, and that was a dickhead here volunteered for it not knowing what the job was and yeah we had to fight it 
covered in shit. We bearing in mind we've got riot gear on, uniform underneath our riot gear. We've got like NBC suits on. We've got face masks on, and we've got helmets on. And it was hot. The smell of shit was absolutely overwhelming. They'd put the bath on, and the bath was steaming, and we were in a confined space, and the smell. I can't describe it. And I literally thought I was going to vomit into my uh, right right um, helmet. Um, so that was that one. And we did manage, but she literally had to be scrubbed. This is going to sound awful with a green scrubbing pad. That's that's how caked on it was. Um, a nurse did that. We, we didn't do that. Only a nurse was allowed to do it. Um, <clears throat> but she was so out of it. I don't even think she knew what was going on. Um, we had another one at Liverpool. I always remember this one. So he was an illegal immigrant and had committed a crime, got sent to prison. Now, one of the popular things that illegal immigrants used to do is feign um, mental illness, feign madness, because if you're mad, you go to hospital and it sort of delays or prevents you being deported. So we would quite often see that the people, you know, these illegal immigrants, um, you know, do this kind of behaviour. So there was this one guy, um, I think he was from like Syria or something like that. And he was down the segregation unit because he'd started a dirty protest on the wing. So he got moved to the segregation unit and he started a dirty protest there. <clears throat> but get this, he sat, he didn't move. He sat cross-legged with a turd on his head for about three days. <laughs> right. And we used to check him and he'd just be sat there cross-legged with this turd on his head. And then what he used to do is roll up little balls of shit like Maltesers and flick them underneath the door. <laughs> so you'd have like piss and piss coming out the door because he'd piss wow. out the door and then like little Maltesers like flying out as well, as well as the turd on his head. Um, so that was, that, that was quite fun. But you started to get used to it and... So when I was a duty governor, um, and that means you're in charge for the day operationally for sort of incidents and anything that, that needs dealing with for the day. Um, we had a dirty protest and I had an egg sandwich in my trench coat and hadn't eaten. You sometimes go 14 hours without having a wee, having because you'd just be going from incident to incident to incident. You, you, you wouldn't have a wee. You'd have nothing to eat. It was just on the go 12 14 hours a day and we had this dirty protest and by this time I got so used to it um and I started I was desperate and I started eating this egg sandwich in, in front of the cell with with the dirty protest going on and staff were like what the hell the hell can you eat with this going on I was like I've, I've got to the point where I was like I don't care I don't care I'd rather smell egg than smell that um so yeah, it was quite it was quite common, but staff and it, and it was awful for staff. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't mm. pleasant dealing with it. But they used to get twelve pound extra per shift 
which at the time was you know quite significant so yeah you know if you had some my maths is rubbish i think it's 60 if you had um five days of prisoner on on day to protest that's an extra 60 pounds you know some of them would be on it for week two weeks three weeks um so although it was grim to deal with that you did get paid extra <laughs> so always was, a braid side always a braid side exactly I guess. yeah 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 i guess i guess i guess when you do these podcasts you're always going to get asked um if you've come across any you know uh, notorious inmates and um listening yeah. to one of your uh, podcasts uh as I, as i do before i interview a, a guest on the show i heard you refer to tracy andrews who i i remembered very very clearly um yeah me for those too. of you who don't know who tracy andrews is this is the uh the lady here um yeah I use the word lady um you know loosely. With, uh, very loosely yes uh but yeah. she's a, a road rage killer she killed her boyfriend in 1996 and um she's a free woman now um and, I know. Re- and remarried married yes. now to uh a guy who she met um many many years ago in a bar i think he was a bouncer but um yeah tracy andrews tell us Tell us a little bit about your encounter with Miss Andrews. So I can't remember I can't remember why she was coming to style. I can't I can't I don't know whether it was a progression move or because we had a life unit. Um I don't know if it was a progression move or something we called accumulated visits where you can if you've got family uh, like miles away, you can save up your visits and you can you can have like say five visits in a week. Um so we went into the morning briefing and we were told um, Tracy Andrews was here. Now, we worked on a remand wing and the sort of general rule of thumb is that you do not put lifers with prisoners on <clears throat> on remand. Um, but she was in. So lifers get a lot more, a lot better treatment let's say so they will get a single cell instead of a double cell they're allowed a lot more sort of things like they can have their own duvet they can order you know a lot more things on the canteen um they're just allowed more privileges because basically they're there for life so they're even allowed canaries that's how bizarre it is anyway so we we're in the morning briefing and we were told that Tracy Andrews was there. Um, now, some staff were quite, some staff, I think, were born in 1996 who didn't really know. But I knew this. I had followed the story. It probably like itself inside out. I was, you know, I wouldn't say obsessed with it, but <clears throat> I was just fascinated about her psychology and, you know, everything that had gone on so she was on my landing um and I wouldn't say I was scared but when you know that someone like that has such an explosive temper you know you start to get a little bit worried she hadn't come with the best reputation there was um issues at other prisons and stuff like that issues with male staff um so she she wasn't she was an unknown basically so went on myself uh, went on my wing worked my way around unlocking all the cells and I got to her cell and I thought 
I'll, I'll introduce myself. I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, don't worry, you won't be here long. I know these aren't great conditions for you, etc., etc. So I walked in the cell, and she was stood there. And all I can say is, you know, when they say you can see the soul through the eyes, she had dead eyes, mm. and I mean dead. And I, I did introduce myself, did other things that I, I you know said I would, you know, get, do. And she just completely ignored me, walked straight past, didn't say a word, didn't speak to any other prisoner, didn't speak to staff. She was cold, stoic. Um, I mean, she's later come out and said that the reason she was like she was is because she was abused as a child, etc., etc. But... <clears throat> I think I'm pretty good at sussing out psychopaths and she just came across as a psychopath to me. She was, it was her eyes that were scary. That was the scariest part, looking into the eyes and seeing nothing. Not a, not, a, I never saw a smile. I never saw her interact with anyone. Um, yeah. No, no staff, no prisoners would. Well, she wouldn't speak to them. Um, and then she left after a week. But she did have a bad reputation. She had allegedly um, said that she was going to try and get pregnant by a male member of staff, um, so that she could move to a mother and baby unit, which would be more um, pleasant. Mother and baby units are very, very nice. Um, so that was the rumour that she had said that she was going to try and get pregnant by a male officer. Now, that might have been the reason that she was moved to style, um, you know, because she was a, th a threat to make, you know, she obviously saw herself as a bit of a, I don't know, a, um, seductive, you know, I, don't, I can't <clears throat> think of the word for it, but she obviously thought she was, she was, um, yeah. A bit of a catch. Somebody who could, uh, somebody who, yeah, somebody who could manipulate, uh, manipulate, yeah, manipulate someone into it. Um, she looked exactly like the photos, you know that you know the ones that you've just shown. Yeah, she looked. I mean, obviously she's going to look the same, but I was expecting a lot of people when they come in will <clears throat> change their appearance, cut their hair, dye it, do something so that they're not recognisable to other prisoners um but she looked exactly the same and it was just so weird it was just so odd that was the first person that i'd seen the first high profile prisoner that i'd seen or interacted with albeit that i interacted with her and she didn't speak to me um but yeah fascinating again i'm sort of really interested in the psyche of these people um I wanted to ask her loads of questions, but uh, those eyes just put me straight off. I thought, mm, I don't fancy getting stabbed, so I'll leave her be. Any, but, other, yeah. any other high-profile prisoners that you, that you came across, either as a, a prison officer or as... As, 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 you know, a, as, a, as a governor, that... So there's two. So there's two main ones. I don't know if you know about Dale Cregan. Yes, yep. That yeah. Horrendous story, yep. Horrendous story. So... Um, just to give a quick synopsis of what he did. He was a uh, in a Manchester gang. 
there was um, a gang war that was ongoing at the time. He went into a pub and shot um, this guy, and who was who was part of a rival gang. He then later on went to this guy's dad's house, shot him, I think about ten times, and then bombed the house with hand grenades. So he's he's committed two murders. That yeah, there you go. Committed two murders within the space of about two weeks. Um, then he went on the run and basically great Manchester police were kicking down every door, going through every associate, trying to find, trying to find him. <clears throat> and on this one particular day, he'd been holed up in a house on his own, a, a sort of empty house. And he rang 999 and he said that the house was being burgled. And two young female police officers arrived and he, this is horrendous, he shot them and again used hand grenades and the injuries to these women were horrific. One died at the scene, one made it to hospital and then died at hospital. Um, so after that, as you can imagine, the... It, it was, it's unheard of in England, you know. Kill, you do get the old police officer that's killed, but this was two female police officers that had been absolutely brutally murdered just doing their job. So I'm not sure how long it was, um, but he handed himself in. He just walked into a police station and said, uh, you know, I'm Dale Cregan and I'm... I'm the one basically that, that killed those women. Um, so the police were all over it, obviously. But he had, the, the weird thing is that he'd admitted to killing the women, uh, but not the two gang guys. Uh, my personal view is that he he was now a target um, and he was gonna he was gonna get shot. And I think he thought if he was if he was in prison, he would be safe. <clears throat> so he came in as a high-risk cate, um, you know, because of his gang, because of the crime and because of his gang connections and about the sort of his ability possibly to escape because he's associate, associated with people with lots of money. So at the time, I was doing a job where I oversaw people that were high-risk of suicide, self-harm, violence. So... I got called in by the big bosses and they said, you're his case manager. That's what you call it. So you oversee all the sort of care package that's put together. Um, you see, you know, you interact with the prisoner. You're as a governor, your name has to go on the paperwork, you know, because you need that authority to deal with him. I think it's basically if someone if something goes wrong, you know, it would have been my my neck on the block. So we arrived handcuffed. Um, with his black eye still and we sat in this room there was a long table and we sat in this room now my job isn't to punish him in any way my job is to keep him safe until he gets to court that's it making sure that he doesn't hurt himself and he doesn't hurt anyone else 
So we sat opposite this this sort of long table and I started to ask him questions and I was like, how are you feeling? He's like, I'm fine. I said, any thoughts of suicide or self-harm? No, not at all. Anything worrying you? Have you got any concerns about coming into prison? No. Is there anything you need? Is there anything we can do for you? And he said, well, I would like to contact my girlfriend because uh, they have um, threatened to rape my son. So I just need to give her a call. But the sort of, the way he said it was just like, I mean, he wasn't horrible. He was, he wasn't being disrespectful or anything like that. He was actually, you know, relatively pleasant to deal with. And I'm sat facing this man and I'm thinking, you've killed four people, four people in a horrendous way. And I'm now sat opposite you and I've got to manage you mm. every day. I've got to see you. I've got to check on you. I've got to make sure he stays alive. I've got to make sure that there's um, no intelligence that that suggests that he's going to be hurt by gang members in the prison. So the weight of responsibility on my shoulders was quite significant. But so what happened was, so when he came in, he, he, he was obviously a steroid user. So he was quite buff. He was quite, you know, you could see the muscles through the T-shirt. He was, you know, um, fit, not fit as in fanciful yeah, yeah. fit. But yeah, um, his black eye was just so intimidating. It was awful. Anyway, um, cutting a long story short, um, he had to be psychiatrically evaluated. His defence was obviously going to try and go down this sort of insanity route. Uh, even though we knew he was a psychopath, just because you're a psychopath doesn't mean you're going to get a hospital, you know, order. So they sent him to Ashworth High Security Hospital um, and he came back. I can't remember how long he was there. And they'd obviously pumped him full of antipsychotic medication. He wasn't psychotic or in my opinion, he wasn't psychotic. Um, pumped him full of medication eventually decided that he wasn't mad like we knew all along he was just bad um and he came back and he put on must have put on about four stone four or five stone and he was like an absolute zombie so it was like it must have been like one flew over the cookies nest you know it was almost like he'd been given a lobotomy um and at that point, you just realised he wasn't, I, I don't know, it's really difficult to explain, but um, it was just such a change in personality, such a change in, you know, it was just like walking around like this, head down, not really interacting with people. Um, so, yeah, it was quite weird. But when he used to go to court, oh, my God, the, the they used to go, I can't remember what court he went to, but I think they used to travel down the East Lancashire Road, which is like a big road near me between Manchester and Liverpool. And he'd travel in at what we call a Category A van, but he would have bike, police on motorbikes, <clears throat> armed police, snipers at the court, um, you know, snipers on the roof at the court, armed police, even at the prison as he was coming out, 
there would be like 10 armed police surrounding the van as he came out. He was that considered that dangerous. But in prison, he was absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Didn't get into any bother. Didn't, you know, didn't create any issues. Didn't have any fights. He was just a stone cold psychopath. Um, the weird thing is, <clears throat> this is going to sound really, really weird. I actually felt sorry for him, you know, when he came back from hospital. Mm-hmm. Because when you take psychiatric meds and you're not mad, it's going to change you. It's going to change your brain. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it sounds awful to say felt sorry for him, but, you know, to go for it was like one flew over the you know, one flew over the cookies nest. It, it, it was horrible. Um, but yeah, so eventually he, he got, I think he got a whole life sentence, which is quite unusual because if you think of the prison population of about, oh, say just 90,000. There's an average, well, about 65 people in the whole population do a whole life sentence. And he got a whole life sentence, quite rightly. Um, But yeah, very easy to deal with. Very, very easy to deal with. Um, Just just bizarre. Oh, yeah. And that's another thing. So when he was going to court, his solicitors requested that he go to Manchester Eye Hospital and have his black eye removed and a more <clears throat> like realistic eye replaced because what he was what he was bothered about was the jury seeing it as a really intimidating factor about him so they wanted <clears throat> this this new false eye because you can you can get really realistic ones now yeah yeah um and we, the prison was just like you can fuck off <laughs> we are not traveling because every time he traveled he had to have police with him armed police um cost a fortune obviously and we were just like no way are we um taking him to the hospital so we had to go to court with his black eye um and all the evidence was there you know he, he, it was it was quite clear but manchester police kicked down every door of anyone that had any association with him and this is why when he went and handed himself in he said you harassed my family now I've harassed yours so he had intended it was premeditated that he would kill police officers and he said the only thing I regret is that they were female that was it that was it Interesting stuff that. Okay, so you said there was another one. Uh, who who was the other notorious prisoner? I'm conscious of the four, we've got about 15 minutes left on the. Podcast. I know, I know. I could chat forever, me. So you could, guy, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> there was a guy called Mark Bridget. So people may or may not remember him. It was it's sort of. I live in the northwest, um, not far from North Wales, um, but it did go nationwide you know because it was such a horrendous crime so just to give the backstory there um was a girl and her family who lived in a town called mcuncliffe very nice town i've been there myself uh, they lived on an estate and they had a daughter called april who was five years old she had cerebral palsy as well so she was smaller than the other kids um she had issues walking 
so she had a pink bike and she loved this pink bike because it gave her the freedom she could play with all the friends on the estate you know instead because because she was sort of limited with her movement this bike gave her the freedom to to sort of get around which i think is lovely um so she asked one night she asked to play out her mum was like okay but i want you back for seven but there were there was a group of other other kids as well <clears throat> it's a safe area you wouldn't think anything would go on so she didn't come home at the right time so obviously they go out looking for it they find a pink bike yeah i can't i can't even look at that man i saw that face every day for for nine months anyway they found a pink bike and then one of the girls came forward and said a man had taken it and put her in a, a vehicle, like a, a four by four type vehicle. And she'd climbed in the driver's side. So the assumption was she this this young girl who, who turned actually to to become a witness um assumed that April knew this guy. Um anyway, so all all alerts went out as a kid as a kidnapping. And They'd found a pink bike and there was a gentleman, I call him gentleman, no, that's that's the wrong word. There was a man, a monster, that lived in the same town. He um, he was known, he had six children, he was in a relation, or he had been in a relationship with a number of women in the area. He lived in a lovely little cottage, just slightly out of the... Um, outside of the, the village or town. Um, he was known in the area. Um, he had a couple of previous offences, quite, I say minor, but, you know, it, I think he had a, a domestic assault, um, a couple of car-related crimes, but nothing to do with children, which is very, very bizarre. Anyway, soon after this girl had been abducted and they were treating it as a, an abduction because that's all the information they had um mark bridger took his car into the garage now the police had already released the information that they believed that the car was a right-hand drive so she got in the driver's side because it was right-hand drive so the left the left side was the passenger side so the the police had released this information and Mark Bridger had taken his car to a garage and it, it was a right-handed drive. <clears throat> so they reported that and it's quite a damning piece of evidence. You know, it's not, not many people have right-handed drives. So they had enough to take him in for, for interviewing. Um, he's a, horrible horrible man however when you meet him and I met him so similar to Dale Cregan I was his case manager but he was that he was considered a really high risk of suicide and I was basically told that I would lose my job if he killed himself because he had to get to court so our main objective was to get to court so that justice could be served so eventually enough evidence was gathered for him to come to prison.
So he concocted a story. <clears throat> so this this is bad. So he he claims that he hit April um, on her bike. He was pissed out of his head, and he hit April with his bike. Uh, sorry, hit her bike, and panicked because she was unconscious. So he put her in his car unconscious. And then because he was so drunk, he doesn't remember where he put, put her. Total fabrication, total lie. But he stuck to that like glue. That was, that was his sort of mantra. Um, and it's quite a simple lie. And so simple lies are easy to sort of, sort of maintain. There was no evidence of damage to April's bike. There was no evidence of any um, remains of the bike on his on his four by four. Um, <clears throat> but the first week he came in, so I interviewed him every day because, again, I talk about the authority side of things, putting names on, on paperwork, stuff like that. You know, they're high level sort of risk assessment decisions that you have to make. Um First, first first day came in and we were like what a nice guy and we we were fooled he was articulate intelligent engaging appeared to show genuine remorse um said he was devastated that he couldn't remember where he'd put april um and for a couple of days, I remember myself and a couple of the psychiatric nurses saying, I wonder if he's, he's right. Well, you know, he seems so normal. And I mean, so, so, so nothing like Dale Krieger, nothing like Tracy Andrews. Um, he was normal and he, he would engage with us. He would cry. Um we now realise that when he started, you know, the crying got a bit too much. And then we realised that there were absolutely no tears coming out of his eyes whatsoever. Doing um, a Matt Hancock, that's called, I think. Is it? <laughs> or doing a, what's her, an Amber Heard. Yeah. You know, that, exactly that kind of thing. So very, very dramatic. He'd come out of his cell in the morning and he'd say, um, April's been to me in a dream, trying to tell me where she's buried. And we're like, and then he's like trying to draw maps in his prison in his cell and I just wanted to rip his throat out because we knew we we received information from his solicitors because he was so high risk of suicide we said you know if he goes on a visit and suddenly gets confronted with a big piece of evidence that's going to increase his risk we have to manage that so we knew that bones and blood had been found in his house um, way before anyone else. Um, so the evidence was overwhelming that he was he was guilty, but he still stuck to his mantra that he'd knocked her over and and couldn't remember. The heartbreaking thing for me was that her family never found a body to bury. Never. Disgusting. Absolutely and he, disgusting. And and he never gave it up. Never gave it up. Still sticks to it. St sticks to his mantra even now. Um, I think that affected me. One one of the and I've said this quite a few times. One of the main pieces of evidence that that came out later <clears throat> in court. 
So bearing in mind, he said that he had taken her unconscious into his car. When the police um, checked his car, there were little handprints on the inside of the window. And that just broke my heart. I just, sorry, I'm just moving around. That absolutely broke my heart because oh. she was try, trying to get out. Jesus. And and as a mum, I think my son was three at the time. I, I was... I would pretty much say I was traumatised by that, um, as was the rest of the team. I'm traumatised listening to you, Holly. Yeah, as, as you know, I was obviously in charge of the team and, you know, we had a bunch of um, <clears throat> mental health workers, psychologists and, um, you know, specially trained staff, prison staff. And I was sort of overseeing all of that. And... I remember is just going into the office and sobbing. And I, I couldn't, you know, in terms of professionalism or whatever, mm. I didn't give a shit. I was just like, I can't, I can't cope. It was the fact that it was the not finding the body, not disclosing, saying shit like she's coming to me in a dream. What? You know, mm. you, you, you just, you torturing her family mm. and, that hurt me, the, the handprints and the fact that her family never got any justice or had the dignity, humanity to bury their daughter. Um, they do do documentaries now. I've seen a couple. Um, you know, the heartbreak is obviously clearly yeah. still there. Um, but it was very hard. Nine months I dealt with that guy. Nine months. Mm. and people say oh you leave your troubles at work and when you get home you know it's it's absolutely fine it it wasn't it really affected me I was drinking quite a lot at the, uh, at the mm. time just trying to blank things out um I hated him mm -hmm. there's no other prisoner that's has evoked such a strong feeling in me um but yes, it's it's one of the cases that just absolutely haunts me even now. Thanks for sharing that. I know it must be tough to to, to talk about yeah, that. Um, yeah, you look. We knew we would never cover everything in your in your life <laughs> on the podcast. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> and, and you know you did go on to be you know to to, to get promotion and, and move up the ladder and, and and eventually become governor of a of prison of a prison. I wasn't fully in charge of the prison yeah. but yeah we would you would quite often do duty governors which meant you run the prison that which is day. an amazing achievement for anyone um you know to work work the way up a ladder holly it shows yeah. the determination but it also shows how good you were at your job i, I like to think so and i it, i worked hard i yeah. i didn't get anything handed to me i didn't get any special favors you know, nothing like that. It was just solid. And I got knocked back. I failed quite a lot of my promotion exams several times. Mm. And I just kept coming back and coming back and fighting for it, working my ass off at, at work. Um, and, yeah, I got, got to where I got to through um, probably, I wouldn't say bullshit, but... Bloody-mindedness, maybe. There's a bit of bloody-mindedness in yeah, there. Just yeah, just determ a determination, Holly, and, and, and it's what's within you, you know, and the fact that you went into that male environment and were, you know, put into those situations, 
guys watching porn on a wing, intimidating, you know, people saying, who the hell are you? And, you know, you, you fought your way through shark-infested water, I'm going to call it, because of your love for That's... sharks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, but ultimately... Um, you know, it, it's it's you know you you've come out of the other side of it, and um, I, I mean I've listened to your podcast with other people, and, and it's just a fascinating life story. I'm going to ask you a million dollar question here, which there's probably no answer to, but you'll have a you'll have a your answer to it, and that sure. is, does prison work? The overwhelming is no hmm. um, our prison system is underfunded under-resourced um, I would say quite archaic in its approach they have privatised a lot of the rehabilitation companies everything is money driven budgets are cut um, and we do have revolving door prisoners that are just you do have the odd person that has one you know one sentence and you know doesn't come back and it's done its job but even the conditions that prisoners live in and prison and and the public think that they have playstations and they have you know and they do have like tvs and they do have like the odd bit of privilege but the cells are disgusting they're locked in a lot of the time. The jobs that they get given, are, we call noddy jobs, you know, just repetitive, you know, jobs that with, with absolutely no value. The education isn't equipped well enough. Um, and it's just, it's, I mean, we always look at, you know, I've always been interested in like the Norwegian sort of route, the, the sort of, um, Dutch route is very, very focused on rehabilitation. The conditions in prison are very, very different. I mean, they might have a different type of, of prisoner. There are some that do definitely need to be incarcerated and kept there. But in terms of rehabilitation, I would say, no, it doesn't work at all. The system, I think, and the, the people in the prison service, the hires up would disagree. But I think the prison service is broken. And because it's not a vote winner. So if the, the government says we're going to give X million pounds to build new prisons and this, that and the other and, you know, invest in rehabilitation, you've got people that can't eat or heat. That's not going to come. You know, it's not a vote winner, is it? People don't give a shit about the, it's like you're behind the walls, you know, outside, out of mind kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I would say overall, I would say no. Holly Douglas, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm glad we managed to get this on. Uh, thank know, you so yeah. much for doing that. And I'm looking forward to getting you back on to uh, News of the World at some point to talk about what is in the news. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll post any links that you have, uh, your socials, etc. down below. Yeah. You're currently writing a book as well, which I think will be a fascinating insight. Um, I, yeah, I think you could yeah. probably write more than one book, Holly. It's got to be, I've got to be perfectly <laughs> honest. I but, know. Do you know what? I've got to, so I've sort of organised it into chapters and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I've already done, so an average novel, novel is about eighty to 90,000 words. Correct. And I've done 20,000 and think I've only covered like, 
five percent of my career it's mental yeah well good luck with it best of luck with it um thank you maybe when the book comes out we'll uh we'll get you back on and uh do a little bit of promo for you and help you out with that as well which and would be great. that would be lovely and news the world definitely i've got obsession with uh megan and harry at the moment oh cost well, of great. cost of li- cost of living <laughs> crisis you name it i'm i'm there well, Holly, thanks very much. Have a lovely day. Have a lovely Christmas, you and your, your gorgeous yep. family. You and, too. Uh, take you care. take care. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Good to speak to you. Take care. A big thanks to all our sponsors. First off, Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website skipsandbins.com. Easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at GOHD.com. And thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources. They are handmade in Cumbria. And you can find more information out on their website, mrvickies.co.uk. And if you want to order any, email info at mrvickies.co.uk or telephone 01768 210102. Big thanks to Blowhole Brewery, a new beer uh, made on Tyneside. The cans are all designed in the colours of Newcastle United strips from days gone by. Black and white there, the purple and blue, and the good old-fashioned blue from the entertainer's days. Have a get more information on the Blowhole Brewery range, such as Geordie Juice from blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the technical side of things and video side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle, and the guys who do our website nufcmatters.com If you want to subscribe to the show then all you need to do is click the subscribe button below. You can also hit the thumb up which does us a favour by liking the video and click share to share to your social media such as Twitter and Facebook. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and the rest and if you want to contribute to the show use the QR code it takes you straight to the membership pack and you can join the channel. What do you get? For your membership pack, you get a scarf, a cup, a pen and a membership card and entry into the monthly draw. You can also make a donation by hitting the dollar sign in the chat tonight. We also give you something for free if you subscribe to the show. To get your car sticker, email john at nufcmatters.com and he will post you one out. We also support the food bank on this show. And if you want to make a virtual donation to the food bank, then go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk and make a donation today. On our website, we've got lots of T-shirts, cups, pens, you name it, memorabilia, if you want to buy it and support the show. For Christmas, we have the Bruno Christmas Jumper, which is selling rather well. And we'll have the Bobble Hats, play like Almiron, Bruno's Magic, and Bruno's 39, and Joe Linton's J7. Get yourself to nufcmatters.com to buy them today. If you want to buy people a ticket for one of our events next year, We've got an evening with Steve Howie, which is Friday the 24th of February at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £50 from nufcmatters.com or newcastlelegends.com. And you can also buy them on Woucher before Christmas. Get somebody a bargain and a nice Christmas present. Peter Beardsley is on on the 10th of February at St Dom's Catholic Club in Newcastle. Tickets available direct from the venue. And for this one, Friday the 2nd of June... Next year at the Grand Hotel in Gosforth, 6.30 start. An evening with Rob Lee, Lee Clark, 
and John Beresford. To book tickets, contact Natalie at healandtour.org.uk or visit their website, healandtour.org.uk forward slash events. If you're looking for a Christmas present and people like a book, then get yourself NME from the Bender Squad to the Gremlins or the last remaining copies of Black or White, No Grey Areas, Lee Clark's autobiography. And you can get them from www.badboysbooks.net.